The lake we went to didn't have a beach where um, adults and kids could hang out and enjoy the water. So instead, what we did was we took the pontoon boat we were borrowing, and we kind of set it up as home base in the middle of the lake and put music on there and towels and snacks. And then all of us, we were with some extended family, kind of enjoyed the water around the pontoon. We had like tons of tubes and paddle boards and kayaks all either anchored to the pontoon or floating nearby. Uh, we uh, had a no splash dive contest. You could have the least amount of splash off the pontoon. And then we had uh, the biggest splash cannonball contest, which my father-in-law, who's 68 years old, won for like the 40th year in a row. Um, at least that's what he tells me. I wasn't there for all 40 years. But um, it was a lot of fun. It was a glorious couple of days. Now, one of the things for this to work, this plan of putting the pontoon in the middle of the lake and use it as our home base, was that we needed to um, put down an anchor. Um, this isn't the anchor, but it's very similar to the one that we used that day. And, um, well, needless to say, the anchor that we used either wasn't big enough, wasn't heavy enough, wasn't strong enough, something, because... About an hour after we started, uh, I hadn't been looking, I hadn't been paying attention, I was trusting the anchor. All of a sudden I noticed that we had drifted quite a far, far away from where we had started. Now thankfully we didn't, you know, end up on shore or ruin the propeller by getting into too shallow of water. But one of the things ironically in the midst of this anchored series that I was reminded of just last week was how important a good anchor really is. In fact, as Matt got us started last week, uh, he reminded us of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way, that a good anchor will keep you from drifting into danger. Having a good, heavy, strong anchor is important for a boat, and, and I will conject, and Matt started us off with this last week, it's really important for our lives as well. And on the flip side, a bad anchor will give you a false sense of safety and security. In fact, I was thinking about it. Is it better to have no anchor or a bad anchor? You know, if you know you don't have an anchor, what are you continually doing? You're watching the shore. You're being careful of the shore. You recognize you're going to be drifting. But if you have a bad anchor... You think you're okay, then all of a sudden, an hour later, after, after the cannonball big splash contest, you look up and you realize you weren't in as good of a position as what you thought you were. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, and maybe sometimes it's you and me, we go through seasons of life where we think we're doing all right, that we're anchored, but it's a false sense of security. Because sometimes we anchor our hopes, our safety, our security to the wrong things. In fact, this morning, I'm going to have just a little bit of class participation. I have a question for you to consider. What are some things that people often anchor their hopes and their lives to that would ultimately be considered bad anchors? Good. How's that been working out? 
for those of you online, um, Helmut said money. Yeah, that, that is one that so often we find ourselves finding security in green pieces of paper with dead presidents printed on them. And there is a certain semblance of security knowing that you have savings, but then the dro- stock market drops or you have a worldwide pandemic and you recognize how fleeting money is. Anything else you think of? Marianne said knowledge. And, and because I don't have time to have a conversation with her, I'm going to conject that this knowledge often that is a bad anchor is worldly knowledge, is the, the knowledge of what culture says is important or what, what the people around us tell us uh, life should be all about. You see, there's a lot of knowledge out there, but not all of it is good. In fact, sometimes people have found themselves being anchored to God, but their understanding of who God is and what he has promised is not at all the reality of what God is really all about. I see this in a lot of ways, but maybe the one that might resonate the most with you is that all of us at a certain point get this thinking that if God is good and God is loving and I'm in relationship with him through Jesus, so I call him dad, that that must mean with a good father that my life is going to be happy. And maybe even in some ways, easy. And yet that's not the God of the Bible. That's not what he promised. He promised joy and peace in all things. But he never promised us happiness all the time. Pastor Matt got into that last week and he he talked about lies that we can anchor ourselves to. That we need to cut loose those lies because They're a false safety and a false security. And whether they're lies that we believe about God or lies we believe about life, we want to make sure that we're anchored to the right things. That's what this series is all about. In fact, at the end of the message last week, we were introduced to a a verse that is kind of the the theme verse of this entire series. There was a a Christian who uh, wrote a, a letter to some Christians in the first century by inspiration of God. And these first century Christians, they were being moved back and forth by the storms of culture and of life, and the writer felt like he needed to encourage them with the right anchor. And so he talks to them about Jesus and about the cross and about Jesus' resurrection, and then he writes this to those Hebrew Christians. He writes, we have this hope this hope of the gospel, this hope of Jesus, we have this hope, that's the anchor, not just for our lives, it's deeper than that, for our entire being, for our soul, firm and secure. So that leads to our first fill-in for today, that, let's be clear, the gospel, the message of Jesus, what he has done for us on the cross is the anchor that no storm can move. And and so often, we think about how the gospel, what Jesus has done, changes our eternities, and that is so true. But guys, when you recognize what Jesus has done and the relationship that we have with him, it doesn't just change our eternities, it changes everything. 
It changes our purpose. It changes um, our contentment. It changes the way we view the things that happen in our lives and the peace that we have knowing that more than God cares about us being happy, he cares about us being holy and being in relationship with him. And so he guides things on li in life with heaven in mind. The gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, is the anchor that no storm can move. Last week, we talked about the gospel coming to us through the word, and if you've been waiting on a Bible reading plan that was announced last week, uh, stay tuned. That's going to come out this week. Look forward to reading the Bible with all of you, chapter by chapter, day after day. This week, we're going to spend some time talking about this. We're going to talk about the gospel that comes to us through communion. And I think that it's very interesting and very strategic of us to be talking and preaching about communion right now because here's the thing of my entire life which is 40 plus years or my entire ministry which has been 17 years there has never been a season in my life and it's probably true for you too where communion has been more infrequent and sporadic than it is now for some of you, maybe you haven't had a chance to take communion until or since the pandemic came back in March. For others of us, maybe it's been once, maybe twice. And there is a pendulum that uh, can swing one way or the other, and I want to call them out uh, or call those two sides out. Uh, the, on the one hand, we might feel as if um, we're not as strong or in some ways that our faith is not as strong because we haven't had a chance to take communion for a while. And to that, I would say, I'm glad you're thinking about it, but the gospel, the message of Jesus, comes to us through the word, and God strengthens us through that as well. The other side of the pendulum is maybe someone who might be thinking, it's not a big deal if we don't take communion at all. And to that, I would say, that's not what Scripture says. Jesus said, here is a gift, this meal called the Lord's Supper. And then he says, do it. Do it often. Do it in remembrance of me. And so today, we're going to bring our attitudes, our hearts, and our minds right to center. And what I want to talk to you about is the blessings of the Lord's Supper and Communion. You see, I could have an entire sermon series on communion. There is so much we could talk about. There's so much that we could go through. We don't have time for that in this series. But instead, I want to focus in on why is communion a blessing? And what did Jesus intend with it when he gave it to us? To do that, we are going to look at the night that Jesus began this meal. As many of you know, it was the night before he died, and what we're going to look at are the words that were recorded by one of the men in the room that night, one of his 12 disciples, a former tax collector. His name was Matthew. Here's what Matthew recorded about communion and that first institution of it. He starts out this way, while they were eating. Now, only a pastor would read those four words and then pause and have a lot to say about it, right? 
But context for what comes after this is so important. In fact, for some of us, maybe we haven't really thought about how amazing the context of the Lord's Supper is. And there's this symmetry with what they were eating, the meal that they had gathered for, and then the new meal that Jesus established. So they weren't just eating any meal. Many of you know this. But they were eating, they were celebrating a special meal. They were celebrating the Passover meal. This was kind of like the Jewish Christmas and Easter and every other religious holiday we have all wrapped together because what I'm saying by that is it was that important, the Passover. It was the greatest festival in the Jewish Old Testament. Now, what were they celebrating? Let me give you just a really quick little backstory. So in about 1500 BC, the Israelite nation, the Jews, were slaves in the country of Egypt. And after about 400 years of being servants or slaves, God had it in mind that enough with this, my people are going to be free and I'm going to give them the promised land in the country of Israel. But there was a problem. The king of Egypt weren't going to let his free workforce leave. And so although Moses would say, let the Israelites go, the king of Egypt would say, no way. And so you might remember this, God sent what? He sent 10 plagues upon the Egyptians, and some of them affected the Israelites as well. The very last plague was in many ways the worst. This plague was that the firstborn male in every home, both animal and human being, would be killed. But there was a way to be delivered from this plague. Here's what God wanted his people to do. They were to take an unblemished, a perfect one-year-old lamb. They were to kill that lamb. And then that evening before the exodus, they were to have eaten the lamb with some bitter herbs and some unleavened bread. But that wasn't the weird part. The weird part was that God told them that they were to take the blood of that lamb, they were to save it, put it in a bowl, and then they were to paint it on the door frames or the doorposts of their homes, which I'm sure many of those Israelite you know, wives were not very excited about their husbands messing up the paint job, right? So so weird to paint blood on door frames and door posts. But when the people did it in faith, they not only showed that they trusted God's promise, they were symbolizing something to come. You see, through the paint, the blood on the door frames and the doorposts, as that angel of death came that evening and saw the blood, they would, that angel, pass over that home and spare the firstborn sons. And so there was two deliverances going on through the Passover, especially that first one. Um, there was two deliverances. The first is this, that the firstborn son in each home was spared through the blood of the lamb. But the other thing that happened is that after this 10th plague, Pharaoh had had enough and said, all right, God, all right, Israelites, you can leave. And 
Israel was freed from slavery. The unblemished lamb, the death of that lamb, the blood of that lamb freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. You know, it's, it's interesting. Here's, here's the symmetry. Fast forward 1,500 years. Jesus is in that upper room, as we read, while they were eating, right? And the Egyptian deliverance, the deliverance from the Egyptians, the Passover meal happened the night before the deliverance from Egypt. The Lord's Supper, when did it happen? The night before God delivered you and me and the entire world from the slavery of sin and death and hell. It was no accident that the Lord's Supper happened the night of the Passover meal. It was no accident that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the unblemished Lamb, died during the Passover as they were remembering the Passover festival. Here's what happened. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. There was usually one person who kind of led the meal verbally when the Passover was celebrated. Most of the time, it was the patriarch of the family. In this case, there wasn't a patriarch, so it was the rabbi in the room, that being Jesus. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, and usually, there was a script you would say, and it would be all about Egyptian slavery and deliverance through the the blood of a one-year-old lamb. But Jesus changed the script. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And you can bet that every person in the room that night, their attention was grabbed in a moment as Jesus went off script and he began a new meal that was all about deliverance but a deliverance that would happen through him. His substitutionary death in our place. His paying for sin so that we don't need to pay for it. His giving of his body into death instead of the the body of a lamb. He continues in verse 27. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I want to talk about the word covenant found here. Because it's a, a word that we hear a lot, maybe, in biblical circles, but maybe we don't always think about exactly what it means. Um, Covenant, probably a good word as far as a definition, would be an agreement. Covenant and agreement are kind of synonymous. And most covenants that we have with people are kind of these two-sided covenants. For instance, I have a covenant, although we didn't call it that, with my, um, my freshman son. The covenant is this. He mows the lawn, and I give him $15. 
Now, before you say, what a cheapskate you are, Dad, remember, I also gave him a place to live and food and clothes, too. So the $15 is just like a, a bonus. But th- that's the covenant I have with him. And he expects that when he mows a lawn that Dad will give him $15. Um, it's a two-sided agreement. Or how about this one? You hit all of your numbers at work, your sales numbers, and the agreement is you receive such and such a bonus at Christmas time or at the end of the year. We have covenants, although we don't call them that in marriage. Like, if you cook, I'll clean up. Or you do the laundry, I'll mow the lawn. You know, those types of things. We have, and, but almost all covenants are two-sided. That's not the type of covenant of the blood of Jesus. Our second fill-in, our forgiveness is a one-sided covenant in which God does it all. um, Mark records it a little bit differently. He says, not just a covenant of the blood, but a new covenant in my blood. This one-sided covenant where you and I, we don't need to do anything at all as far as works go. And yet God forgives all of our sins because of the blood of the lamb, not painted on the doorposts, but that was shed on a cross in our place. And here's the thing that I feel has always been very interesting to me. To me, one of the ways that you can recognize that the Christian faith is the right religion, I'll say, or the right understanding of God, is that the way human beings most often think most easily is a two-sided covenant. And every other religion is all about, I do this for God, and then he loves me. I mow the lawn, he gives me $15. I go to church, my week is good. I be a good person, someday I get heaven. Hopefully. I hope I was good enough. But there was that season of life where I strayed far. I hope that doesn't make it difficult with God. You see what happens with the two-sided covenant? There's never hope. There's never confident hope because we're always wondering whether we've done enough. Our relationship with God is all about a one-sided covenant. And when we come to communion and we hold the elements in our hand and when we taste them and when we eat and when we drink, you know what we're doing? We are actually handling the very body and blood with the bread and wine that was used as the covenant sealer of our eternity and of our forgiveness and of our relationship with God. When we come to the Lord's Supper, there is a miracle happening where God allows us to come into, dare I say, physical contact with him. It's amazing. It's strengthening. One pastor said it this way, said it's brilliant that God would allow us to do that. 
And in a very real way, as you're handling those things, we're going to do this for those in the room at the end of the service, it also becomes very, very personal. You see, we all go through seasons of life where we wonder if big God truly cares about little me or if he has time for me and my problems and my concerns and my issues. But in in the Lord's Supper, he comes to dine with us. We get to dine with him. Um, Makes me think of the life uh, as a pastor that we are invited into certain special moments in people's lives, like the birth of a child, or maybe even more so the baptism. We're invited uh, to confirmations or to a wedding, and, and even uh, to funerals. These, these special moments we're invited into people's lives, and believe me, I don't take that for granted. It's pretty humbling. Um, one of the things I've noticed with weddings, that is, is that even for an outgoing person like me, um, going to a wedding reception can be a little bit nerve-wracking, and here's why. <laughs> because, first of all, I don't oftentimes know anybody except the bride and groom, so I have no idea who I'm going to be sitting with. And let's, let's be real, most people at a wedding reception don't want the pastor sitting at their table. I mean, the pastor's wife is probably okay, but the pastor, like, put them in the corner, okay, type of thing. Anyway, I remember one wedding I went to where I got my table number, had no idea where it was, walked around, found my table, sat down, looked up, and guess where I was? They had seated me at the table with the parents of the bride and the groom. And my first thought was, man, this is awesome. I'm hungry, and I'll get food first, all right? But after the hunger spoke for a moment, what then I thought about was, this is amazing. I don't even, in this case, in the wedding reception, really know these parents very well. They are four of the most honored people in this entire event, and I'm dining with them. It's pretty humbling pretty amazing. I want you to have that same sense of awe and wonder in just a little bit. And every time you have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table, just think, the God and creator of the universe, his son, Jesus, who stretched out his arms and died in our place, he's with you. He's dining with you. He wants to be with you. What an honor that is. Our third fill-in, at communion, Jesus chooses to dine with you. You know, we've said it before that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is powerful whether it's in communion or whether it's in the word. So why did God give us both? Have you ever heard of love languages? There's five of them, according to the author of the book. Quality time, physical touch, acts of service, words of kindness, and gifts. I, I was stressing that I'd forget one, but I got all five. Don't ask me to say them again, but... Five love languages. Which one's the most important? 
None of them. They're all needed. And they all speak to us in different ways. But let me ask you this. For those of you who have been married or are, if you just continually tell your spouse you love them but never do any of these other things, how well that's going to go? See, we're created to feel and experience love in different ways. And that's why God in his brilliance, in his perfection, didn't just give us the word, but he gave us communion that hits a different sense with the same power of the Holy Spirit. And the message he wants you to hear and to know is this, that you are loved. As he comes to dine with you, how humbling and amazing that is, you are loved and forgiven child of God. Let's hit our last verse that Matthew records, at least. As Jesus is finishing up the meal, he says, I tell you, disciples, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine, the wine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's interesting how Jesus ends the meal. After having the disciples' hearts and minds focused on the cross and on the blood and the body of the Lamb of God, he then shifts their focus a little bit, which is absolutely amazing. You see, um, the Lord's Supper, communion, is a meal that would have us, as we take it, look backwards and forwards. It's right in the middle. We are to look backwards at the most important event in the past, Jesus' death and resurrection. And then at that same meal, we are to look forward to the most important event in the future, our entrance into heaven and the wedding supper of the Lamb for eternity. Maybe you can think about it this way. It's the difference between the rehearsal dinner and the wedding reception. The rehearsal dinner is nice. The bride and groom are there. It's special. You feel honored to be there. But usually, there's something just not quite as glorious about the rehearsal dinner as there is the wedding reception. At the wedding reception, the smiles seem to be bigger, the music most certainly is louder, and the group is a lot bigger. The Lord's Supper, the communion, is an amazing gift. It's the rehearsal dinner. And we should be so thankful that we've been invited. But may we not forget as we come, as we eat and drink, for the wedding celebration that is to come, that because of what Jesus has done, we get to experience an even greater celebration forever. So number four, communion anchors us to the past and points us to the future. You know, thinking out towards heaven, so important, so vital. Uh, some of you know my, my grandfather just passed away about a week ago, one of the most godly men um, I've ever met. 
feel privileged to know him. What a blessing to our family. And whenever events like that happen or a worldwide pandemic hits, you begin to think about things different, don't you? About what is life and how short it is. And I can't wait to see Grandpa's Astro again someday in heaven. You know, he's going to be at the wedding celebration. And your loved one. But even more than that, Jesus will be there. Can't wait. As we leave communion today, I want you to live with eternity in mind. I want your confidence to grow knowing that there is a sure hope of heaven that's waiting for you because of Jesus. I want your purpose. I want your, your attitude. I want it all to change by God's help knowing that life is short on earth, heaven is long, and heaven is our home.